This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. At 11.10 p.m. on August 3rd, 2016, a badly injured woman called 112, the Swedish emergency number. She woke up and saw a man sitting on top of her husband in bed, stabbing him. When the perpetrator realized that she was awake, he started stabbing her as well. She was probably unconscious for a while, but when she came to, she called emergency services to get help. She was badly wounded and hadn't yet realized that her husband was already dead. Ambulance and police were sent to the beautiful summer cabin in Granliden, outside the city of Arboga in the middle of Sweden. This was the beginning of what would become one of Sweden's most infamous murder cases. Hi, and welcome to episode 37 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. Before we get into today's case, I want to share a promo for a new podcast that launches on January 2nd. It's called The Scene of the Crime. And in the first season, they are diving into the Delphi case. I guess you've all heard of Abby and Libby. Coming up in Season 1 of Scene of the Crime, Delphi. Why Libby? Why Abby? Why Delphi? Those girls loved each other. They were good friends. Neither one of them left each other's side. Both those girls are heroes. Before the words came out, I knew. I knew this was not good. As soon as I saw that, I knew something really bad happened. The detectives were like, this is not going to take that long. It's a small town. Somebody's going to say something, and this is all going to be over soon. The first couple of weeks, that's what it felt like, is that any day now. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months. My biggest fear is that whoever did this would do it again. I don't want that to happen to another family, because I'm telling you, it's hell. There was no logical reason anybody would have known those girls would be there that day. Child abduction murders in and of themselves are incredibly rare, but the abduction of two children at one time is even rarer. I've only seen a couple in my entire career. There is a lot of crime scene evidence. Uh, some of it is somewhat odd. Shortly after solving the Golden State Killer case, I did speak with an investigator that was involved with the Delphi murders. If you haven't walked across the bridge, you don't understand, right? Yeah, like that bridge but is scary. It is scary, and those railroad ties are rotted. That bridge scares me, so yeah. for somebody to be able to cross it, he's moving well enough that he has to know the bridge. He's done that before. It could have been any one of our kids. It could have been anyone at the bridge that day. It's hard for me to believe that anybody could do something so bizarre and horrible and not feel compelled to tell somebody about it. Those two young girls were everybody's daughter. I refuse to accept evil as a standard bearer in American society. I believe we're one piece of the puzzle away from figuring out who this individual is. To the killer who may be in this room. Do you want to know what we know? Well, one day, you will. You've just listened to a short preview of Scene of the Crime, Season 1, Delphi. Be sure to subscribe right now wherever you listen to podcasts. So search for Scene of the Crime. That's S-C-E-N-E of the Crime, wherever you get your podcasts. And I also want to tell you about shows you can listen to on Stitcher Premium. I know I said it before, but I really recommend that you check out Off the Record with Nick and the Captain from True Crime Garage. They release an episode of Off the Record each week, and you get extra content around that week's case and also some updates on old cases in which new information has come up. 
Another great thing about using Stitcher Premium is that you get ad-free episodes of, for example, My Favorite Murder and Criminology, plus some hit shows from the Wondering Network, such as Dr. Death, The Vanished Podcast, and many, many more. Stitcher Premium offers thousands of hours of original content, early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes and archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums for when you need to get off your true crime binge and just laugh a little. And of course, my show is also available on Stitcher Premium. To get a free trial of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code SWEDEN when you sign up. That's stitcherpremium.com and use promo code SWEDEN. And remember, by supporting my sponsors, you also support my show. Thank you. Now, over to the story. First of all, I want to say I'm sorry about my voice. I hope it doesn't bother you that much. I have a cold, and that's just how it is sometimes. This is part one of a three-part story. Part two and part three is going to be available on Patreon in a couple of days. And in the normal feed... Part 2 will be out in a week, and Part 3 in two weeks. If you want to hear the episodes before everyone else, and also ad-free, head over to patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. This story is written and researched by Johanna Ulstol Friberg. As sources for this episode, she used the court documentation and the police files. And I've also listened to most of the recordings from the trial and added some things to the script. Thank you so much, Johanna. This case shocked Sweden in August of 2016 when it was reported that an older couple, a man and a woman, had been attacked in the bedroom of their summer cabin late one night. The man died from his injuries, but the woman survived. Previously, on the night of the attack, the 41-year-old daughter of the victims, Johanna Möller, had persuaded her 20-year-old boyfriend, Mohammed Rajabi, to kill her parents. She gave him a ride to the cabin, gave him a knife, and waited in the car while Mohammed went inside. About a month after the attack, the couple's youngest daughter, Johanna Möller, and her 20-year-old younger boyfriend was arrested. Johanna was named Arboga Kvinnan, or the Arboga Woman, in the media, because the attack took place in a town called Arboga. When the police first questioned the surviving woman, Anki, she immediately named her daughter Johanna as a possible suspect. She actually named her daughter already in the ambulance while being brought to the hospital. She also told the police that she and Göran, the father, had decided to stop supporting their daughter Johanna's luxurious lifestyle a couple of months before. This had angered Johanna to the extent that she hadn't spoken to them ever since they made this clear to her. Anki believed Johanna was capable of murder, the fact that she no longer got any money being the motive. When the police started investigating Johanna, they quickly found another suspicious death in her family. Her husband, Aki, had drowned in the water just outside the very same summer cabin the previous summer. Johanna had signed up for 2 million Swedish kroner life insurance only months before he died. This is the story of the killings of Göran Möller and Aki Pasela. One fathered his own killer, and the other fell in love with his alleged killer. But let's start from the beginning by diving into Johanna and her background. Johanna Möller was born in Eskilstuna on January 15. 1975, by parents Göran and Anki Möller. Three years prior, the couple had given birth to Johanna's older sister, Ulrika. 
They were a typical middle-class couple with a nice house in a nice neighborhood. The family was like any other family in the early years. Johanna enrolled in a gymnastics club when she was seven and took a real liking to it. She trained and competed all through her school years, but something changed when she hit puberty. She had always been very pretty as a child, but as a preteen, she really blossomed into an attractive young lady. She took an interest in boys, and they really liked her. Filled with self-esteem from the attention she got from the opposite sex, she found herself liking the power she had over others. Boys would do anything for her, for a chance just to be near her. Girls envied her and wanted to be her friend. You could definitely call her a boy's magnet from an early age. Her parents, who had gone through a similar phase with their oldest daughter, started setting some boundaries for Johanna. They gave her a curfew suitable for girls aged 13, but Johanna hated it. She was loving her life and wanted to spend as much time as possible with friends and boys outside of home. There was a constant conflict going on between Johanna and her parents, and Anki, her mother, ended up being the bad cop in most of the fights. Joran was more lenient and didn't have the energy to always lecture her. But Anki was worried about Johanna. She noticed how older guys were looking at her daughter, and at one time a 20-year-old man came by the house to take the 13-year-old Johanna out on a date. Anki would have none of that, and the evening ended in a terrible fight with her. Johanna felt trapped and frustrated and her parents powerless and worried. She wrote notes that she put up all over her room, saying, You effing bitch, stop touching my stuff and stop trying to control my life. The notes being addressed to her mother. Her room was in the basement of their house in Eskilstuna, and Anki would go down every morning to wake her up. One morning, when Anki opened the door to her room, she saw Johanna lying seemingly lifeless on the bed. Anki looked around and saw an empty bottle of aspirin on the side table of the bed. She immediately ran up to her, trying to wake her up. But Johanna was unconscious. Anki called an ambulance and they rushed her to the hospital to have her stomach pumped. Johanna survived. The suicide attempt was poorly executed and probably just a cry for help. But instead of improving the relationship between mother and daughter, it caused a scar that would never heal. Despite the constant fighting with her parents, Johanna managed to get decent grades in junior high. But she had developed a severe case of anxiety and experienced many panic attacks during this time. Clearly, she was in need of professional help to overcome her problems. But as far as we could find in the research, Johanna was never in contact with any counselors or such. Her parents probably tried to get her some help, but if someone doesn't want help, it's hard to do something. In later police hearings, Johanna says she always felt like her parents didn't like her much. She felt mistreated and misunderstood. Her father was very old-fashioned and dominant, and her mother liked her older sister more than her. Johanna started high school and the problems got even worse. She dropped out in her second year. Instead of school, she had various jobs working in an office as an assistant nurse for the elderly, and she even was a substitute teacher for a brief time. At night, she was out partying with older friends, 
staying out as much as you could. It didn't really matter how many boundaries her parents set. Johanna did whatever she wanted anyway. Then one day, she introduced a new boyfriend to her family. His name was Magnus, and he seemed like a decent young man. Many boyfriends had come and gone in Johanna's life by then. But this time was different, both Anke and Göran thought to themselves. Magnus had a calming effect on Johanna, and they both started hanging out more at home as opposed to going to bars and clubs. Finally, things were stabilizing at the Möller house. And then, the 18-year-old Johanna revealed that she was three months pregnant. Anki and Göran weren't thrilled by the news. But at least she wasn't constantly partying and meeting new boys every week. In comparison, a grandchild seemed like the least bad of the two options. Johanna and Magnus got married and moved into an apartment that Göran had arranged for them in a nearby neighborhood. Their daughter, Sofia, was born in 1993, and three years later they had a son, Jonas, in 1996. And one year later, in 1997, they had their third child, a girl who was named Emma. I just want to mention that I've changed all the names of Johanna's kids. They had nothing to do with this. By the time Johanna was 22 years old, she had three small children and was starting to feel very bored with family life. And that's when their neighbor, Anders Olsson, started to look very attractive to her. The two first started flirting when they happened to run into each other in the apartment building. But one thing led to another. It wasn't long before they were having an affair and Johanna's husband Magnus soon found out. Johanna and Magnus divorced and Johanna moved in with Anders. But the love didn't last and Johanna made a new life for herself and her three children, now living alone in an apartment. In 1998, when her youngest daughter was one year old, Johanna decided she was going to get her high school degree. She studied hard and managed to get her high school diploma. And then she fell in love again, this time to a man from Stockholm. His name was Pad, and he was a high school principal. Johanna moved in with him in Stockholm. During this time, she studied to become a chef. But once she finished her training, she never worked at any restaurant. Instead, she got pregnant with her fourth child and gave birth to her second son in 2003. They named him Peter. While he was still a baby, Johanna decided she wanted to pursue a career as a social worker. So she enrolled at a university and took classes between the years of 2004 and 2007. When she graduated, she was 32 years old. During this time, Johanna's father, Göran, founded a company together with her older sister, Ulrika. It was called Pearls for Girls and was a manufacturer of accessories and jewelry. Johanna's sister was the designer and her father the businessman who knew everything about logistics and retail. The company was wildly successful right from the start, which probably caused even more envy from Johanna. Not only did she feel inferior to her sister because of her parents liking her more, but now her sister was making tons of money and Johanna was barely hanging on with student loans and four children to support. After her college graduation, Johanna found a job as a child welfare social worker in a town called Eskilstuna. She helped abused and neglected children and their families. Sometimes she would have to make decisions whether to place children in foster care and evaluate whether a child could be returned to their birth family. 
I have come across some information regarding this period in Johanna's life that I'm not entirely sure if it's true or not. But according to some sources, Johanna allegedly placed children in her own care at least two times between 2007 and 2015. There is a financial motive for this. Social workers aren't paid well, but by having foster children, Johanna could still make a decent living for herself. But as I said, I'm not completely sure that this information is accurate. And just to make things worse, allegedly, one of these foster children drowned while being in Johanna's care. But this is not mentioned in the official court records, and the primary source is her mother, Anki. Perhaps not the most reliable source, considering the circumstances. So just take this with a grain of salt. Johanna and Pad were having problems in their relationship after their son was born. Johanna asked her father for a loan to be able to buy an apartment, and he agreed. That apartment in Eskilstuna that she bought in 2007, she regularly stayed in to get away from everything. Johanna's father Jöran and Johanna ended up co-owning the apartment. Jöran owning 95% and Johanna owning 5 The relationship between Johanna and Per got worse, and they finally split up in the end of 2007. So Johanna was single again, this time with four children to support. She created a profile on a dating site called Badoo, and she started conversations with different men. When Johanna's mother, Anki, told the police about her relationship with her daughter, she referred to this period as the good period in their relationship. Up until the time when Johanna bought this apartment in Eskilstuna, she had had a decent relationship with Johanna. But once Johanna was single again, her life became messier and her mother Anki didn't approve of the choices that she made. Anki was probably worried about her daughter. The stability in the family life was gone, and new men were introduced to the kids and to the rest of the family regularly. Jöran, Johanna's father, stayed close to Johanna even during this period, as he had always done. And Johanna's online dating soon led to her meeting a police officer who she started seeing. The couple stayed together for almost a year before they broke up in the summer of 2008. During the police investigation that followed the murder of Johanna's father, it was revealed that Johanna had created online profiles on another type of dating service at this time. The kind of dating service that included sexual services for money. The first listings that were found were published in late 2008, after Johanna broke up with the policeman. It is unclear if Johanna ever ended up meeting any of the men she got in touch with through this service, but that she had an ad up and running, that's a fact. In 2011, Johanna fell in love with a new man, Aki Pasila. He was a large and burly construction worker whose family was originally from Finland. Aki was divorced and had two children with his ex-wife. He left his home in Stockholm to move in with Johanna and her oldest son in Eskilstuna. Johanna's father Jöran and her older sister were doing very well for themselves with the Pearls for Girls business venture. It was doing so well that they got an offer to sell the company for an undisclosed amount of money. But looking at their financial reports, profit and loss statements, it is likely that they got at least $1 million each. This seems to have been a huge source of frustration for Johanna. Her sister got it all. Looks, brains, a loving husband, 
and now at least a million dollars. And Göran, who seemed to have a closer bond to Johanna than her mother did, took pity on her. Following the sale of Pearls for Girls, Johanna was given $100,000 by her father during the summer of 2016. Her mother didn't know anything about this. The gift from her father was meant to fund the bigger part of the house that Johanna and Aki bought together after they found out that they were pregnant with twins. And in December of 2012, they welcomed two beautiful babies. Before that, they had sold the apartment and moved into the nine-bedroom house that they now lived in. Again, Göran was listed as a co-owner of the property that Johanna was living in. According to friends and family, Aki and Johanna's relationship was complicated. They were constantly arguing and disrespecting each other. No one thought the relationship would last. And having twins would of course put a strain on any relationship, especially one as fresh as theirs. Johanna's mother, Anki, told the investigators later that she never really got to know Aki. He was constantly on his iPad when she came to visit and rarely took notice or socialized with her. He was not rude or aggressive towards her, more like distant and uninterested. Johanna, on the other hand, told her parents many times how she had been abused both physically and mentally by Aki. He was not good with money, and his employers claimed that he stayed home from work regularly for no apparent reason. Johanna told her family and friends that Aki was a drug user, but Aki's family and also his ex-wife strongly denies that. It is possible that Aki started using after he met Johanna and her friends who used drugs. One of Johanna's daughters testified to seeing Aki strung out on benzos at least one time during the relationship. It's impossible to get an objective view of this. Perhaps Aki was abusive and used drugs, or Johanna used this as a defense later on. We just don't know. But things started to get really out of hand in the spring of 2014. Both Johanna and Aki filed complaints to the police on each other. According to Aki, Johanna had told him she knew people who could beat him up and hang him from a tree. Johanna, on the other hand, told the police how Aki yelled at her from the couch while she was doing the dishes. Allegedly, he had screamed at her, Hey, do you really want me to get up from the couch and beat you to death? Johanna's version was that she had replied with a funny line, just to get him to settle down. I could easily see you hanging from a tree for all the birds to look at. To Johanna, this was a joke, but Aki had a different story. The complaints didn't lead up to anything and the case was closed. But this was it for Johanna's father, Göran. When he heard about what Aki had screamed at Johanna and how scared she was of him, he bought an apartment for her in March of 2014. He owned 95% of the place and Johanna put in the last 5%. Göran was very concerned about the safety of both Johanna and the twins and he wanted to help them get out of the situation. Johanna told her father that she never wanted to see Aki again, so she needed her father's help to buy furniture for the new apartment. She was never setting foot in the house she shared with Aki ever again. There were three months between the signing of the contract until the day when Johanna got the keys to the apartment in July. During this time, Johanna kept feeding her parents with stories about how awful Aki was and how much she needed to get away from him. Johanna, the twins and her oldest son moved into the apartment. 
but Johanna only stayed for about a week. Then she moved back into the house with the twins to live with Aki, after all. Instead, her 18-year-old son ended up living in the apartment alone for the most part. When Johanna moved back in with Aki, things had changed according to her. They made up and decided to start fresh somewhere else, away from Eskilstuna, away from her parents and their nosy friends. They soon started looking into moving to Strömstad. That's a border town near Norway, almost a five-hour drive from Eskilstuna. Aki, who was a carpenter, could get high-paying jobs in Norway. And as a social worker, it was easy for Johanna to find a new job in all parts of the country. They put their house on the market and started planning a new life together in the new town of Strömsta. According to Johanna in later hearings, she loved Aki and he loved her. Sure, they had their differences, but deep down there was real love. They couldn't live together, but they couldn't live apart either. And they had their twins that bound them together for life. So the couple got married at Arlanda Airport on December 8th, 2014. But only three weeks later, Aki sent an email to Johanna where he asked for a divorce. He had even downloaded and attached the paperwork from the authorities for her to print, sign and send back to him. According to Johanna, this was just a joke. Aki had a dark sense of humor and he often pranked her like that, she said. Sounds like a really weird kind of joke, though. And another weird detail is the fact that Johanna never told anyone that she had married Aki, not even her parents. On January 14, 2015, Johanna went online and signed both Aki and herself up for life insurances with an insurance company named IF. If either of them died, the other one would get 2 million Swedish kronor, that's about $200,000. And then they went on their honeymoon in February. Johanna later told the police how she and Aki went to a resort in Egypt, where they spent two wonderful weeks together. But something she didn't tell her family nor her friends was the fact that Aki had to be rushed to the emergency room during their vacation. Aki had woken up one morning and felt almost paralyzed. He was examined by the Egyptian doctors, but they couldn't find anything wrong with him. When he came back to Sweden, he told his ex-wife what had happened, and he also went to see a doctor back in Sweden to try to figure out what had happened. Another thing Aki told his ex-wife after he came back from Egypt was the fact that Johanna had been cheating on him. He had found out that she had slept with at least three different men since they got married in December. And it was now March, so she had been keeping quite busy. Aki now felt that he had had enough of this, and he told his teenage daughter that the marriage to Johanna was over and that he was moving back to Stockholm again. Johanna also made some changes after the trip to Egypt. She and the twins moved back into the apartment again. The house was sold and Aki was moving to his parents' house in Gustavsberg outside of Stockholm. Johanna's parents, Joran and Anki, were relieved. Finally, things could go back to normal again. Aki soon found a job in Stockholm. He worked different construction sites all over the Stockholm region. As part of his employment, he had another life insurance worth $26,000. It's hard to understand how the relationship between Johanna and Aki really worked. 
They had been on and off again for almost four years. Abuse, drugs, breakups, and then suddenly the marriage and the life insurances. In the spring of 2015, though, it seems as though Aki and Johanna were completely broken off. In May, Aki fell in love with another woman. But because of the strained relationship he had with Johanna, he never told Johanna that he had met a new woman. Johanna was also becoming more and more preoccupied with work. The reason behind that is something that I will get back to a little later. But it meant that Johanna's focus wasn't on Aki at all. She was busy with her work. And according to Aki's family and his girlfriend, he was very sad about the way things had ended with Johanna. He felt hurt and betrayed by the infidelity. And he had sacrificed so much. He had moved from Stockholm to Eskilstuna for her, although it would complicate his relationship with his older children. During the summer of 2015, he even confessed to his parents that he was scared of Johanna. It's because of all these circumstances that the following events are so hard to understand. Sometime in the beginning of August, Aki and Johanna decided to spend a weekend together in her parents' summer cabin outside of Arboga, a beautiful place called Granliden. Johanna's parents, Göran and Anki, had bought the property in the late 1990s and spend as much time as possible in the beautiful surroundings. Granliden sits right on the brink of the Hjelmaren Lake. Hjelmaren is Sweden's fourth largest lake. The lake is very shallow. Although it is of substantial size, its average depth is only about 6 meters, or almost 20 feet. Close to the cabin in Granliden, the water was only about 1.5 meter deep. That's about 4 feet. Perfect for swimming or fishing. There was a wooden jetty or bridge with an outdoor table and a few chairs. The family would often gather down there to look at the sunset. Sometimes they even had supper together down by the water and enjoying the beautiful surroundings. So, Johanna, Aki and the twins, who were only two and a half years old at this time, decided to spend a weekend at Granliden to celebrate his birthday, despite everything that had been going on. Before taking off on Friday, August 7th, the four of them had stopped at the local grocery store to buy food, wine, and beer. Aki had the day off and left Stockholm that morning. He picked the twins up from daycare and continued to Johanna's place of work. Göran and Anki, Johanna's parents, had been very upset when they heard Johanna was about to spend time with Aki. They told her he was not allowed in her apartment anymore after what he did to her. And they also told her Aki could not come to Granliden. But Johanna knew her parents were out of town and she had the place to herself. So she decided to bring him there anyway. They arrived at Granliden at about 4.30 p.m. The weather was nice and they spent the afternoon with the children playing in the yard. Both Aki and Johanna had some wine to drink. Around 6.30, they walked the 200 yards down to the jetty by the lake, where they laid out crayfish traps. Crayfish, or kräfta as it's called in Swedish, is a small lobster-like seafood that many Swedes enjoy eating in August. 
There's a fun fact about this in episode 32 if you want to know more. Johanna and Aki had dinner by the lake. The children had hot dogs and the grown-ups had shrimp, cheese and bread. And more wine. They opened up a bottle of champagne and enjoyed the warm summer night together. But the wonderful family gathering would come to an abrupt end. Johanna and Aki started arguing. And what happened after they started arguing has not been established. But this is Johanna's version. And by the way, this whole night is Johanna's version. But anyway, they yelled at each other and Johanna didn't want the twins to witness their parents fighting. So she went back to the house with them at around 8.15pm. Aki stayed behind. Johanna sent him a text, saying she would come back down to the jetty once she had put the twins to bed for the night. He didn't reply. The twins were unwilling to settle down that evening. Johanna had to lay down between them to make them fall asleep, and it didn't take long before Johanna fell asleep herself. She woke up in the middle of the night and didn't want to go down to the jetty again. Instead, she sent another text to Aki, asking him to come up to the house instead. She sent 16 text messages to Aki that night, but she didn't get a single reply. Despite of this, she didn't walk down to the water to see if he was okay. When asked about this later by the police, she simply said Aki was like that. He would use the silent treatment as a way of hurting her. It was just one of his ways of torturing her. She says that she put the phone down and fell back to sleep. At about 5.30 a.m., the twins woke up. Johanna got up and made some coffee. While it was brewing, she walked around the house, looking for Aki, but he was nowhere to be found. This didn't bother her much. She figured he must have stayed down by the jetty all night. There were sun chairs for him to lay in, and the weather was nice. Johanna had some coffee and watched the twins play outside. She called her oldest daughter, Sophia, around 8.30 a.m., and they talked for some time before she took the kids to a nearby fenced sheep pasture. The twins loved feeding the sheep and lambs with grass from their little hands. When they got back to Granliden again around 9, they walked down to the lake. Johanna was expecting to see Aki passed out in the chair, but the jetty was empty. And that's when she realized the small rowboat was also missing. She figured Aki must have gone fishing that morning and didn't think more of it until she noticed his phone on the table. There was no way he would have gone fishing without his phone. And this was the first time she started worrying about what could have happened to Aki. She had an eerie feeling that something must be wrong. She called 112 while still on the jetty, looking at the lake. While on the call with the operator, she notices the boat further down by the water's edge and tells the operator that she fears he must have fallen out of it sometime during the night. They hang up, and she took the twins back up to the house to wait for the police and ambulance to arrive. Five people from the police and emergency services arrive at Granliden shortly after Johanna's call. While Johanna stayed by the house with the twins, the group walked down to the lake to look for the missing Aki. They searched the area for about 30 minutes before they eventually found his body face down in the water, at about 10 a.m. A doctor was called to Granliden to declare his death. And here's something really weird about this whole situation. Johanna didn't tell anyone about Aki's death. She didn't call anyone that day, 
not even her children. Somehow her oldest daughter found out anyway and went to Granliden to pick her mother and the twins up. Johanna made her promise she wouldn't tell anyone else about what had happened to Aki, and she promised to keep it a secret. The ambulance took Aki's body to the forensic department in Uppsala, where they performed an autopsy that concluded he died of hypoxia and acidosis caused by drowning. The police decided not to open up a preliminary investigation because of his alleged history of drug abuse and the high blood alcohol levels in his body. It was reasonable to assume he had fallen out of the boat while attempting to go fishing in his drunken state. They decided it was all just a sad accident. Four days later, Johanna called the insurance company to file a report about her dead husband. The service agent at the insurance company was surprised to hear from a mourning widow so soon after such a tragic death. Usually, it takes a lot longer before a grieving spouse has enough energy to deal with insurance and other things surrounding a death. The insurance company found this behavior very suspicious. And that is where we're going to leave off for part one. Part two will be available in the regular feed in a week. And part three will be available in two weeks. But if you can't wait that long, both part two and three will be released in a couple of days in the Patreon feed at patreon.com slash Sweden. And I have realized that I have been missing some shoutouts for some of my patrons. I'm so sorry about that. The patrons I have missed have been supporting the podcast for several months and I'm super grateful for that. Thank you so much to Veronica D, who I also have been talking to a little bit on Facebook. She is the sweetest person ever. And she works as a flight attendant. It has always been my dream when I was younger. Either I wanted to be a flight attendant or a hairdresser. And look at me now. I'm in IT and I'm a podcaster. Well, well. Thank you so much for your support, Veronica. And I also missed shoutouts for Brittany K and Leslie D. Thank you both so much for your support. And if I missed giving you a shout-out, please send me an email at truecrimesweden at gmail.com and I will get it on the next episode. And I also have a couple of new patrons. Thank you so much to Diane S. and Ray J. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what my Christmas was like this year. It's not really a fun fact, but I hope you will enjoy it anyway. We had an American guest this year, a 19-year-old man named Zach, who is a good friend of my 18-year-old daughter. They actually met online, and I was kind of hesitant when she asked me last spring if he could come visit. But the two of them talk for hours via FaceTime each day, and has been doing so for almost a year. And after talking to Zach a few times, and also with his mom, Sherry, I felt comfortable with having him come and stay with us. Hi, Sherry. I believe you are listening to this. So, Zach spent two weeks here this summer, and now he arrived about a week before Christmas, and he's staying about three weeks total this time. And now he calls me his Swedish mom. And my girls finally got the older brother they have always wanted. The bummer this year was that we didn't have any snow. It would have been cool for Zach to get a white Christmas since he lives in LA. But it is kind of fun to have someone from another country stay with you during a holiday. Because all the traditions that we take for granted are kind of strange for someone else. Like the fact that a lot of families in Sweden play something called Bingo Lotto on the 23rd of December. 
That's the night before Christmas for us, since we celebrate on the 24th. This uh, bingo lotto thing is a televised show that you buy a ticket for. And then they draw the bingo numbers on live television. You can win different things from the bingo, but you can also call the show and win things like $5,000 worth of food, or $3,000 trip, or even a car. The TV show is four hours long, and we usually just keep it on in the background while we're preparing food and wrapping last-minute gifts and so on. And every time the bingo sessions comes on, someone yells out, Hey, it's bingo time! (laughs) And everyone runs to the TV. Well, this bingo thing is just a thing we do every year. It's not a big deal, but my kids would get upset if I forgot to buy the bingo tickets. So this time, Zach played with us. I don't know if he understood much of it, but he learned some Swedish numbers from it. So that's something. But I think it's also an important thing for the people who doesn't have anyone to celebrate with. The four-hour show contains live music and different celebrities comes to the show to make rhymes for gifts. Do people still do that? We don't in our family anymore. But people can send in what they want a rhyme for. For example, a bike for your kid could go something like this. You say you don't like walking, but now look who's talking. You are going to be so cool when you ride this to school. Kind of fun anyway. Maybe we should start that again. And on Christmas Eve, we start our day out by eating rice pudding with cinnamon and milk. And that is also what we put outside for Santa. A bowl of rice pudding and milk. No cookies for Santa in Sweden. And then we watch Kalle Anka at 3pm. Kalle Anka is the Swedish name for Donald Duck. It's a one hour show with short pieces of different Disney shows. It was a big thing when I was a kid, but it kind of still is. We just have to watch it. And after that, we open the gifts. We had a great Christmas, even though we didn't have any snow. We spent Christmas at our cabin by the ocean, and it was peaceful and lovely. Well, that's all I had for today. I will tell you more about Johanna Möller and her devious plans in the next part of this episode. Until then, take care of yourself. Goodbye! Hej då!